0: This is definitely a problem that's disproportionate in many areas, but the problem itself has no boundaries. And you start to see some of the highest problems, some of the highest balances, individual balances are with people that have extremely advanced education, right? Like doctors and lawyers are amongst some of the biggest people that have, carry the biggest balances because they're not, they're still not being taught the eight extra years of school. Not one of those classes about how to manage your credit card and manage your books, right? And now, if you're making 200000 300000 a year, the credit card companies will issue you even more credit.
1: Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals they will go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Joto PR the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome to another episode of Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and today we will be taking a discriminating look at the ever-evolving world of software-as-a-service technology. We are light years from its emergence as the solution for SMBs to afford enterprise software to an industry valued at $123 billion with 30,000 companies, and 14 billion customers worldwide. Wow. The cloud delivery model of licensing and subscriptions on a pay-as-you-go basis are now the standard, and the world as we know it is still evolving. Today, i prepared another special treat for all of you. I've put together a highlight audio reel featuring key takeaways from some of our top guests in this competitive arena. By the end of this episode, you'll gain valuable insights into the disruptive minds of some of the keenest SaaS industry innovators. So again, fasten your seatbelts, folks. Get ready to embark on a journey where we will explore, one, exposing the problem of fake fast growth SaaS models. Yep, I said it. Fake fast growth. Two, self-reflecting by leadership to make better growth decisions through SaaS. Three, realizing that debt solutions are simple, but the problem is complex and remedied through SaaS. Four, predictions by SaaS that there will be an increase in credit defaulters as the compounded debt outweighs monthly income. Ouch. Another one, how sales of SaaS have fundamentally changed when marketing innovative products. And demos of SaaS innovative products proves solutions shifting your SaaS focus to that of a product-driven technology and making sure your technology is not only better, but also simple to use. If it's too complex, no one will use it. In this first snippet, I highlight Heather O'Neill, innovator and disruptor, founder of the business strategy company Pixels for Humans, a company that helps SaaS companies solve their toughest challenges and grow into mature, community-focused businesses. In this episode, Heather shares where tech companies go wrong when scaling and creating long-term success. What is your main fundamental ingredient for disruptive innovation?
2: It's going to sound a little cliche, but it's caring. And when I say caring, I don't mean like having nice feelings about people in the world or wanting good things for them. But I'm talking about the action of caring giving space for actually acting on the things you say. If we care about humans, if we care about society, if we care about what is happening to the earth, that requires us to take action and make choices that are different than the ones that maybe we've made in the past. And especially so in the tech industry, especially in tech companies, there's this notion of, oh, we live by our values, but that's rarely actually the case in the way that they make decisions. They have these fluffy words that sound nice, like we care, we're innovative, we are inclusive. But when it comes to make choices that would either potentially make them more money, but might cause a lot of harm or would force them to be sort of inhumane in some way, even if it's just to their own employees. Most companies and most decision makers and companies, especially tech companies, will choose the usual path, the make money at any cost path. And that's the thing that I'm really looking to disrupt is how do we turn the values on your website into actual ways that you can make decision in your company? In the natural world, in reality, we all have seasons. We all have times when we're growing and times when we're resting. The trees every year, yes, they get taller, but they also lose their leaves every season. And without doing that, if they had leaves all the time, it wouldn't work. But we look at company growth and we say anything that keeps the numbers always going up. And that's just not even sustainable. It's not even possible. And so we do fake things to make that happen. One thing that happened recently is there's a tech founder who said, oh, I'm building in public and he's on Twitter. And he said, oh, I just had to lay off 7% of my staff and I'm really sad about it. And I'm having all these feelings because it was so hard because they worked so hard to get us here. And then he goes on to say, I laid them off, not because we don't have enough money. We actually have, we're profitable currently. We're more profitable than we've ever been. But in order to keep scaling, I need to cut costs. Hiring new people is so much more expensive. And I'm watching all these tech layoffs. And you can't tell me that in the next six months, any of these companies, especially these tech giants, aren't going to be hiring again. And some of them are still hiring even as they're laying people off. It's a short-term cost-cutting measure that I saw people at Google and Amazon who had 20 years experience there, 20 years experience. Can you imagine what is in their brain that nobody is going to know now? It's such a short-sighted decision. And I think that constantly in tech, we're seeing founders told that that's how you make decisions, just short-sighted, whatever gets you the money now. And when you're bootstrapped and you're very small, sometimes that is true. But as you grow and at these tech companies, they have the money. They have the capital to support that, and they're losing so much.
1: What are the benefits of doing it differently, stepping outside that avid craving for agreement? What are the benefits on the bottom line in regarding that? Is it slower growth? Is it just as advantageous to do it that way?
2: I think that it's really important to understand that, yes, it does have an impact, but it looks different, right? We have to be okay with the differences. One of the things that is so interesting is what has worked in the past and the mentalities that have supported that in the past are becoming outdated. I saw a recent study, Gen Z, 67% of them will not work at a company that they don't feel aligns with their values. And those are that's the next generation of workers coming into the workforce. And I don't see that changing. Like I don't see them growing up and getting sort of calloused and all about money. It's a different way of living and being in the world. And so if you want to stay competitive as a company, if you want Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which my child is a part of, to actually really support your business and be a part of it and purchase from it and participate in whatever you're creating, you have to care.
1: How do you help an entrepreneur map
2: out this caring model with their business model for growth? One of the first things that I look at with companies that I work with is how they make decisions. And we look at first how they think they make decisions. And then we look at the decisions that they made and we sort of talk through how that decision got made.
1: Do you create SOP or you know, something that is a framework for, for all decision-making in the future and measure this against their growth?
2: So we make basically sort of a flow chart more than an SOP, but I guess it it would also be considered an SOP. And it's nice because then that can be shared with other members of the team. And then what I usually when I work with someone, we do this upfront, and then we spend six months working on it together to make sure, A, it stays aligned. And when it doesn't feel aligned anymore, they don't just toss it aside, they update it. When Google and Amazon started the beginning of the year by laying people off, So many tech companies were like, oh, we now have to lay people off. You don't actually. And that's the thing that when I work with people, they don't feel like they have to do what everybody else is doing just because everybody else is doing it.
1: How do you see this model changing venture capital?
2: I gave a talk (laughs) in 2018 about women in tech for a, a 10 year anniversary of a women in tech organization. And one of the things I said was in venture capital, they're not actually making decisions similar to what we talked about earlier based on who is actually going to do the best. They're making decisions based on what they know and what they've seen before. And I had a quote from, I forget which investor, but one of the more famous ones said, give me a bike guy in his twenties in a hoodie and I'm sold. He literally said that. And so investors, there's no accountability right now in the VC world. Like They just throw money at whoever they think and hope it works out. But when you are a founder who is willing to walk away from investment, when you're a founder who's willing to find a different path or to not compromise on those things, the investors lose the power to dictate what you should do in your business. And when that happens, then you can work together to actually create something meaningful as opposed to just something that's going to make money at the expense of often everybody using it. I work with mainly tech founders. And I actually also, this is a, Audience, I didn't know that I, but it makes sense. I also work with people who have service businesses that work with tech founders. So people like me as their coach, support, consultant, champion, sounding board. And so people who really would like to build differently because not all tech founders want to build differently. They just want to get their cash and move on. And those, those are not the right people for me. And that's fine. But there are plenty of tech founders who start their company because they're like, I had this problem and I just needed it solved. So I solved it and I want to solve it for other people. And when you have that idea of I can make something better for myself and for other people in the world, you don't want to end up creating something that actually doesn't help people or that just monetizes their participation without thinking about what they really need.
1: This next snippet is by Jason Stoltzman. He's the CEO at Relief App. Jason is a serial social entrepreneur who's been disrupting for over a decade. He's a mentor and an active angel investor. Unmanageable debt is directly tied to mental health issues in America. Enter Jason, CEO and co-founder at Relief App, who is building a digital solution to overwhelming credit card debts. Wow. As someone who has experienced the effects of toxic debt firsthand, Jason is on a mission to make financial relief accessible to everyone. And guess what, folks? It is possible.
0: I think if you're going to do something that hasn't been done before, or you're going to do something different and not just better, I think the main ingredient for me is really caring about, well, everything really, but... I think it's more than just money. I think when people go into entrepreneurship, there's this like unspoken goal of like having a yacht or becoming like a billionaire overnight, which, you know, is very unlikely. Starting a business from scratch, especially in the early stages, it's like, it's basically like a lottery ticket. The problem is extremely complex. And I think credit card debt, it's just not sexy. People don't talk about it. Obviously, you don't want to talk about your debt. It's not the topic of dinner conversation. It hasn't been normalized. There's a lot of stigma around it. But what that stigma does, it has it has systemic ramifications, right? And part of that is when you start to look at the problem itself. I mean, we're talking about one in three Americans have an account that's either that's falling behind, right? That's one in three people in America. I mean, just think about that stat for a second. And if you start thinking about that, it's like, how did we get here? Not only has there been a lack of financial education and typically in these communities, but also when you find the data, some of the largest creditors in the world and subprime lenders with the highest interest rates, they go after these communities, right? So it's like a compounded problem. You issue more credit in a society that leverages credit for good and for bad. Vis a vis credit cards, spending money on shit you just don't need, right? That problem is going to compound. And it did. Last quarter alone was the largest increase in credit card balances ever recorded in the history of recording debt. It's actually, there's a name for it. It's called the credit card trap. And many people don't know they're in it. And it's all gamified around uh, the credit score, right? Our whole cultural system of value in America today is gamified by the function of a credit score. Why are these things not taught? And by the way, this is this is definitely a problem that's disproportionate in many areas, but the problem itself has no boundaries. And you start to see some of the highest problems, some of the highest balances, individual balances are with people that have extremely advanced education, right? Like doctors and lawyers are amongst some of the biggest people that have, carry the biggest balances because they're not—they're still not being taught the eight extra years of school. Not one of those classes about how to manage your credit card and manage your books, right? You, and now, if you're making two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand a year, the credit card companies will issue you even more credit. Well, the system is gamified. I mean, every time you turn on the television, our whole country is set up to sell you something, and 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 you want a life that many people can't afford. And extending credit gives you that opportunity to get something that you cannot afford. I mean, even look at those Visa and MasterCard commercials of that lifestyle they're selling people. It's like, oh shit, I want that, but I don't have the money to pay for it. But now you do with credit or your best friend. Well, that comes with the big shackles. So you're right. It is. I mean, when you look at it from a hyperbolic perspective, it is absolute modern day slavery. How would it look and how could we give back to these consumers and how can we take that care? and turn it into disruption Mm. right which ultimately goes into your first question and that's when i found out that we can this is the time that we can do this and it really came about at the beginning of the the pandemic because of my involvement in the space early on i started to get a ton of different calls from friends and family hey i know that you worked in the credit card and debt space I'm having this problem, can you help me? And I started like manually, like walking people through the solutions because the solutions are there. They're so simple. They're just not being put in front of your face. 98% of people that are in this problem, they're hiding from these creditors. So one of the things the app will do is it'll do that for them. It'll just filter through your situation. It'll collect data automatically through new modern day technology and technology tools that I won't bore you on, but they currently (laughs) exist. We're not reinventing the wheel and it'll present you these options. It'll make these options completely transparent to you. And you get to choose that this, if this option is right for you, or is it not? And it does that completely free, whatever the situation is, whether it be lowering your interest rate, whether it be uh, a forbearance program where you can't pay for a couple months. And that's an option available given the situation, given the specific situation that you're in, or whether it be a, a settlement, a lump sum that's significantly less than the balance of what you owe. It should be giving people educated options on their solutions that fit their needs and the needs of their family and not some young kid calling you up threatening your life if you don't make a payment. We're a win-win because when you start to look at the collection costs of this debt and the fact that debt collection companies have a 2% contact rate in general, and we'll have a 100% contact rate because people are coming to us for this solution... So we want to work with them. We want to work with creditors. We want to figure this out together.
1: How do you see things changing over the next 3, 5, 10 years when this type of communication and education makes it its way into the public where they start to go that's fucking it.
0: First we have to get everybody in so we can help everybody and the more and it turns out the more people we can help for free more power we have to help them right it's community it's help by numbers and collective bargaining oh, we're much more powerful together as a unit than we are individual and that's sort of what the system is banking on is is this stigma that gets people from talking about it so we don't unite you know relief is going to unite the people together right because it's doing it for free and making it accessible for everyone we right. have the power to get everybody a better deal
1: my next snippet is disruptor, Anthony Franklin. He's the head of revenue for AVA, a SaaS platform that provides real-time captions using AI and human intelligence. In this episode, Anthony dives into the topic of accessibility for underserved populations and how it impacts the bottom line. He shares insights on understanding what your target audience wants and building a product-led growth strategy.
3: It's a laser focus on our users, their problems, their concerns, and the solutions to why they came to us in the first place. So I I think a lot of companies and a lot of products, frankly, just kind of go off a path of building cool features or features that someone somewhere might like, but they're not really focused on their specific user base and building exactly what they want. And I think it sounds kind of like the lame, easy answer. Everybody should be focused on the user, but it's actually very easy to get lost in what you could build versus what your target market actually wants you to build. And I found that that's led to a a ton of disruption in my personal life and in companies that I've advised.
1: How is being a product led growth enthusiast tie into really focusing on the problems of your target audience, and why is that so important?
3: instead of the traditional go to market strategy where we send marketing materials that hopefully hit the right spot, we use our salespeople to persuade people we don't let them use the product until they pay us, and then we let them use the product and then we have a customer success team that is very focused on hey let's have a lot of meetings and talk to you about how the products working in your organization, scratch all of that. Product-led growth is how can I use our product to be our marketing engine? Forget sending random things to people. How about we just let them use the product for free and they can decide whether this meets their needs or not. It's a fundamental difference in how you go to market It's thinking about our users and their problems and really crafting how we approach our customers with can the product do this versus humans just doing this? And it all is kind of the underlying assumption is that sales has changed. People want to try it first. They don't want to talk to a salesperson or any human for that matter. Like they'd like to just try it. And that doesn't offend me, there's plenty of people that are willing to talk to us after they've tried the product because then it's not a guessing game. Now they know, I think this solves my problems, but I've got some questions about how we would implement this or how this feature works. It's just a fundamentally different conversation. So when I think about user focus, that's how it ties into product improvement.
1: Let's lay out accessibility today.
3: When we talk about accessibility we think about accessibility and and sort of what's happened even up till today. I think a lot of accessibility, it's been an idea, but then there's also been laws that have been introduced that have encouraged accessibility. I think about the 1990s, the American Disabilities Act came about and really sort of pushed reasonable accommodations. And this idea of people deserve reasonable accommodation so that they can do their work. But in other countries, maybe they take it even a, a step further. I know in France, there are laws that require you to have X amount of disabled employees in your organization or your find. In today's world, though, the truth is you can have a company of 10,000 in the United States, 10,000 employees, and not one has a disability. That's the truth. There's no required minimums. We put laws in place, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the world is accessible. And so in our role and what we build, we talk to deaf or hard of hearing users all of the time. Being deaf's not always something that you can tell. When someone's partially deaf, they can perhaps still read lips. When they have moderate to severe hearing loss, perhaps they can still follow along the meeting and get 60 to 70% of the information that was there, but it's disguised. And the way accessibility works today is, you know, an employee, a student, a patient needs to raise their hand. They need to disclose their disability. They need to ask someone else on the Zoom call to turn on their captions or a different captioning service. The other part of accessibility is some people and other companies are very passionate about building accessibility, but they're doing it inside their walled garden. So some of the big players out there will say, hey, we have live captions if you come over to our platform. And you go, wait, what about in-person conversations? Can can you help us have accessibility there? What about on the other platforms? Are you offering your technology and, and building that so that we can have those captions on every platform? And we find that there are not companies building tools that are accessible everywhere and in every situation that a deaf or hard of hearing person would go into. And again, deaf and hard of hearing is just who we're focused on now, but we have a vision to help every disabled employee, student, customer, patient that they can go to any store and have the kind of communication needs that they have met. And that's a very that's ambitious a
1: big, big, big purpose.
3: When I think of captions, I think of, Oh, great. We turned the captions on on my video conferencing platform. This is good enough. It's kind of inaccurate a little bit, but who cares? But for someone who's deaf or has severe hearing loss, I don't even know when the captions were wrong. So I'm sitting here thinking that I got this information and it was wrong. And I go into the next meeting with that wrong. And I add on a little bit more wrong. And I go to the next one. And all of a sudden, we haven't thought of captions from, again, the viewpoint of our users.
1: How is this innovative? How is this disruptive? What's been done?
3: If we're talking about captions, they sort of fall into three categories. We have ASR, Automatic Speech Recognition. This is what you turn on automatically on your YouTube video or your call like this or something like that. Inaccurate, probably 85% accurate. Depends on how slow people speak. There's a heavy accent if multiple people are speaking over each other, right? Generally, 85% on average. Fine for probably the everyday employee or student that doesn't have any hearing loss. They know, oh, it messed up there. Okay. Then you have sort of CART captioning, which is like a courtroom stenographer used in many industries. They have a special phonetic keyboard. They type at the rate of speech. It takes about five years of training to keep up with the rate of speech. It actually can be very difficult. And because of that, there's sort of big prices associated with that. But generally, it's highly accurate. 96% accurate or so. Maybe a but little it can more.
1: be very expensive priced out of the market.
3: Incredibly expensive and it's limiting. I mean, sometimes you have to have the captioner right there with you. You can only use it on certain platforms, and they're usually 48-hour plus notice that you need to bring captions into a conversation, which we all know, if I want to schedule a meeting with you tomorrow, I need something much faster than that. And then there's a third category, which is what we are doing. So we're using automatic speech recognition as the base, which is about 85% accurate. Then we have live captioners that come into the conversation in real time, and they're real-time correcting the transcript that you're seeing on your screen and bringing it up to 99% accuracy. So this is fundamentally different because this means you can have captions on your mobile phone, iOS or Android, you can have captions as a bar on any video conferencing platform. It means you can have captions in person just by bringing your phone to that conversation. It means you can caption podcasts like this one, YouTube videos. But again, they're all highly accurate. And because we have a team that we employ and deploy in sort of last minute situations, if necessary, The deaf or hard of hearing person can come with confidence. They never have to be in a conversation where they're not really sure they're going to understand what's going on. I think when we think about the future of accessibility, we are very much believers that it's autonomy, then accessibility. So when I provide tools, I have to be very careful that I am not making them come to me first and always come through me, I need to provide a tool that they can use when they feel they need it. It's not just something that I have to manage and they have to come to me first. I, I want them to feel flexible. And that's how we think. And that's why ABLE was created, that, that idea of autonomy. And I can use this when I want so that I still keep that autonomy, but I also have accessibility.
1: And we can't forget Ben Fries Jensen. He's the Userflow co-founder and chief growth officer. He sees the importance of helping the underserved for SaaS companies and is shaking up the industry. He sits down with me to talk about how he's disrupting the SaaS industry. And Esben truly believes all things are solved by software technology.
4: Looking at something and and, and seeing uh, this can be done smarter, and especially with software, um, instead of uh, the manual or, or legacy process. Um, so that's how I look at, at most things. It's like, uh, if it's not involving software, um, then uh, it could probably be done better. Um, and that's what I've done with both of my businesses, uh, both in Cobalt, where we changed a more traditional kind of security testing industry into a more modern software driven um, uh, method. And then with Userflow now, we are, we are helping people onboard better on software products so we can uh, bring more software solutions to the world. Um, so I'm really driven by, uh, you know, getting more software out there uh, in the world. What Userflow does is, is uh, it, it allows software businesses to add a layer on top of their uh, own software. Uh, without having developers involved, so they can build it like custom success managers or product managers. They can build these layers on top, which is basically guides to the user on how to use the software. Um, uh, so that can be checklists, It can be like uh, step-by-step guides. It can be uh, links, etc. So, So we're really helping these software customers better onboard um, uh, customers and particularly... Maybe non-tech savvy uh, customers, right? Somebody who needs a bit more guidance uh, when using the software.
1: What's the status quo of these SaaS companies in the terms of users and you know them being user friendly?
4: There's a new trend in the software as a service market called product-led growth, uh, and what that speaks to is a new kind of way of thinking about your software, uh, where you focus more on having the product drive more the of the growth basically and actually a big part of that is uh, that you need a great ux in your product uh, because otherwise people wouldn't know how to use the product without support right um and i think software as a service companies in the past have been getting away with um uh, just having customer success or customer support uh, be a a stopgap solution right where they can cover all the gaps in the software. Uh, and especially in enterprise software, where you have a lot of functionality, uh, you you often end up solving the support part by um, by adding people, right? Um, and but what this product-led growth movement does is really uh, start thinking about that in another way, where you think, okay, what if we didn't add people? How what should we do with the product to actually make it easier to use, right? And maybe that will result in Cutting features sometimes—that's actually not unrealistic—that you sometimes cut away some of the fat from the from these applications. Uh, but it's also about improving the general UX and improving things like onboarding. If you look at something like Salesforce, which is a widely used I was software, just application thinking by, of that, yeah. Uh, Salespeople—you—you—I mean—they grow and grow, and then they keep adding features, right? But if you really look at it. Probably the majority of Salesforce users are just using the core functionality of Salesforce. So uh, I think they could win a lot. And I think they are actually, I think they offer like a, an essentials product, which is more focused towards the maybe SMBs and so on, where they actually cut away a, a lot of this extra stuff, right? Because it's just um, kind of uh, confusing, right? You don't need to look at all that stuff. Um, so, so I think in general, software uh, makes things better. What then ends up happening is uh, you sometimes end up adding too many things uh, and making it complex. Um, and that is, of course, not good. So then you have to rethink again. And how can I make it smarter, better UX and so on?
1: What has been the biggest pain point, the pent up demand that makes this innovation so demanded right now of making software now to make software better?
4: One of the big changes has been this whole, the, some people call it the end user era. Uh, basically, the new generation coming out uh, on the workplace um, um, are used to technology. Uh, they're used to using mobile apps, uh, software for all sorts of things, right? Um, and they expect the same in their workplace and they expect to actually self-serve. They don't expect that they need to speak with a customer success or customer support or whatever, um, they want to have those available, but they don't see it as a necessity to get started, right? And the problem for um, software as a services was they had kind of ended up in a situation where they had made or have made, and some businesses are still in that state, where they've made customer success a necessity, right? Uh, they are, they need to be there for you to start using this uh, software product, but in, in the end user era. That's not good because they people get annoyed by that adding that people uh, extra layer unnecessary layer, right? And you should instead focus on how can we allow them to self serve, and then of course be there when they need support, but don't make it a unnecessary step. It's also a big part of another trend called no code, low code, um, and that's something you're gonna hear more and more in the future. Uh, and really, what that is about. It's about um, allowing non-developers to build software. Um, so uh, basically, uh, imagine that uh, you, you can allow anybody to build. It's that's actually been the case for for many years. You can allow anybody to build a website, right? Using things like WordPress and and things like that. Yeah. But now it it starts to become more sophisticated software you can build without code. Um, and that's a very interesting journey because suddenly the, the developers become, they become more the tool builders, right? And that's what we become in Userflow. We become the tool builders. So we build a tool that allows others to build, right? So we're building a tool um, that, that, um, that allows non-developers to basically build these onboarding journeys and quite sophisticated onboarding journeys uh, with constant uh, contextualization, personalization, all this stuff, without having to involve developers, and that's uh, yeah, it just changes the world, right? Because uh, and this can continue uh, to other areas, right? And suddenly, you you end up in a world where it's like the salesperson is building the sales software, uh, right, and the customer success person is building the customer success uh, processes software in the company we are taking some work away from developers but then they can focus you can say in, a, in the software companies we're selling to then they can focus on the core product that they're selling right like they have some core product that they are selling which is uh whatever that is right um uh, so so then they they can focus 100 on that and then they don't have to focus on like the onboarding piece like you can say the Of course, they have to to make the software great to use and all that stuff, right? But they don't have to focus on all of the aspects of onboarding. We work with a lot of like software as a service companies, right? A lot of B2B with complex software enterprise platforms, right? That needs to onboard users. But another big area is also education. So the whole education industry, software for education for teachers, students. um, uh, That's a big area for us. I think because you can't expect teachers necessarily are very tech savvy. So you need onboarding uh, for your software for those. Um, and, there, and those, there's typically also quite a bit of a scale.
1: All right, folks, that's a wrap on today's episode of Disruption Interruption Mashup number three. It's again, another incredible roundup of some of the most exciting moments from our episodes that have revolved around the disruptors, innovations, and in enhancing life and business Through software as a service technology. As a note, we pick the most popular podcasts that people download and share and comment on that is truly relevant in today's society. Here's a quick recap of the key takeaways from today's episode. Heather O'Neill challenges us to consider that when you're a founder who is willing to walk away from investors, find a different path, and not compromise on those things. The investors lose the power to dictate what you should do in your business. Jason Staltzman draws our attention to the last fiscal quarter, which saw the largest increase in personal credit card balances ever recorded in the history of recording debt. Anthony Franklin exposes the myth that simply checking the captions feature on a Zoom-type conference call is enabling a hearing-impaired person to understand the conversations and takeaways and Esben Frizz Jensen reveals that a majority of the world's first SaaS users are just using core functionalities because understanding all the additional features is too damn confusing and requires wasted time with customer service. With my finger on the pulse of the tech industry and so many verticals, I've had the pleasure of speaking with industry leaders who have successfully disrupted their respective verticals and have shared their invaluable expertise with me. Their insights and experiences will give you the confidence to navigate this ever-changing landscape and provide exceptional experience for your customers. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes of Disruption Interruption, where we'll continue to bring you inspiring stories and expert insights. We hope that we've inspired you today to stay ahead of the curve. Until next time, keep disrupting. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal health care or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.